Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Morning, church. So good to see y'all. I like how you spread out evenly. It gives me full range of motion. I really appreciate that from you. I'm so thankful this morning to be with you. Uh, I spent the weekend with with some of your men, and um, we we've had a, I think a really a blessed weekend together. I think some people made some real life change while we were there, and that's what we're doing that for. And so that's wonderful news. Um, I'm a little tired. I got in late last night, so I preached to them at eight o'clock last night in the other part of the state. So I, got a, I think I got home about 1 a.m., but I'm feeling good. I, I'm excited to preach this message. Hebrews is such a beautiful text and such a wonderful, a wonderful thing. This whole series we're going to be in for a few weeks together is called Jesus is Greater. And I can't think of a better encouragement to you as we come in week in and week out to just hear how much our Savior loves us how much this salvation is greater than anything we could have possibly imagined or expected. And that's where we're going to be today. Talking Last week we spoke about how the name of Jesus is above all names, how he's the great Savior of all. And now we're going to talk about this idea of a greater salvation. In fact, the Bible really is that kind of story. It gives us an initial uh, word from God, which is, is a way towards God, but there's a greater salvation now in the blood of Jesus. And that's where we're going to spend some time. Only a few verses today. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2, 1 through 4. But I want to remind you that really this entire text, as we spend several sermons over the next couple of years on this, uh, that Hebrews chapter 1 really is the keys under the doormat. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, it says, This shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their names. The idea of superior, greater than, better than is really a constant theme of the book of Hebrews. The writer, the author, had clearly part of his intent was to let us know, to let certainly the hearers of his day, but now us, his church, know that there is a greater Savior and a greater salvation. And he's going to come back to that week in and week out. Now, I recognize something, that we don't throw around the word salvation a lot. We, we just don't. Our culture doesn't talk a whole lot about this word salvation. But it does not mean that underneath the way people live, there isn't a thought process going on. That there's something they're living for that they think uh, will make them right or make them good. That there's some underlying characteristic or, or thought process. And we look... For salvation, if you will, in in a lot of places. Uh, Anything outside of Christ would be the wrong places, but we look for it all over the place. And if if you're kind of new to your faith, or maybe you're trying to figure this thing out today, perhaps you've been looking in some places because you, you haven't really clearly heard or understood the message of salvation through Jesus. Maybe you're searching for some meaning. I think that's just the general state of humanity is we're searching for purpose. It, there's, a, there's just a deep ingrained thing in us. I would say it's because God put it in us where we are hunting for purpose. We want to know that this thing we're doing matters, that it's not pointless. So we're on this hunt. Perhaps you've heard and maybe you've got questions or doubts. or Maybe you're a, maybe you're a constant, uh, you've been a believer in Christ and you, you know what you believe. But however, as this text is going to get into today, you've drifted away. 
for whatever reason, from the joy and the assurance that you once had. I want to give you a couple of reasons. Um, this, this came from one study. I, I, when I'm preparing any sermon, I read a whole lot of different commentaries and books on the matter. I, I like that kind of stuff. You might think that's strange. That's, that's really part of the joy. Preaching is a lot of fun. I really do love it. Uh, but the preparation is where God feeds me. Uh, that's the part where I'm getting what I need. Uh, and hopefully you get, I hope I can deliver that to you. Uh, but I spend a whole lot more time studying than you're ever going to get in a sermon. This is an aside. I can't give you what you really need. 40 minutes ain't going to cut it. You've got to spend that with the Lord day in and day out. You need a lot more time with Him because He's the one that the, the communion you really need. But as I was wrestling with this, one older writer, this guy's like early 1800s, Alexander McLaren writes, and I really appreciated his thoughts on this. He says there's a lot of reasons that believers drift away, and I kind of summarized his thoughts into to four F words, if you will, places where failing, if you will. You could go a different direction with that. But, <laughs> but I would say you're getting an F in some areas. That, think of it that way. Come with me. Four F words. The first is, you might be drifting away because of forgetfulness. We have a fallen nature that is given to forgetfulness. It's not, there's nothing wrong with you necessarily. That's a lot of us. We're forgetting things that really matter all the time. And we continually have to remind ourselves of the good news. That's why, and this is an interesting thought, many places, I would say maybe the number one word, apart from Yahweh himself in the Old Testament, is the word remember. Remember, because we are forgetful people. We, we have a leaky brain, if you will. And he's constantly, this, this, this idea of coming back to the good news, this is why Paul says, I beat my body daily. That, he's not saying literally, I'm, I'm hurting myself. He's saying, every day I've got to bring my mind back under the control of the Savior, because I'm a forgetful person. That's the first. The second one is one that I fear, and that's the F called familiarity. Familiarity. It, 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 in fact, there's a phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. If you grew up in the church, as I did, some of you did, you've been around the story of the gospel so long that it's lost its impact. That somehow it's become so familiar, like the sons of Eli, who grew up, oh, my dad's a Levite priest, and they just start doing flippant things with the things of God. And God punishes them for this. And that's a great fear of mine. I grew up in the church and I grew up a PK, but I don't want to become so familiar that somehow this fantastic news of the gospel would somehow be less than for me. Oh no, if I'm truly familiar and spending time with the Savior, getting that kind of closeness, it's not going to feel less, it's going to feel more. The third can be this, and I think almost all of us are wrestling with this. If it's not forgetful that's causing you to drift or familiarity, it's probably the full plate. Plate's too full. You have no margin in your life. There's no time spent with the Savior because there's no time available. Schedules are too busy. And we've allowed our attention towards Christ and His great salvation to wane because our focus is simply spread way too thin. Put some margin back into your life. And then the fourth is this. The former things. The former things, this one might be the most challenging to understand, but some of you will get it, I think, that we fail to apply the gospel to our lives because of the former things. The old nature keeps creeping back in. I keep letting the old self take charge. 
such that I don't see Christ for who he is. There's a lot of reasons. This is a few options, but there's a lot of reasons we might drift away as believers. And then there's a lot of reasons that we wouldn't even look towards towards salvation to begin with as unbelievers. In the book of Hebrews chapter 2, I think the believers here are being warned to carefully heed the message of God's great salvation offered in Jesus. Don't miss it is really the point of this message. Lest you drift away or miss it. We can carefully heed the message of God's great salvation too. I believe the text is going to give us three clear ways we can carefully heed the message of God's great salvation offered in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, let's read together verses 1 through 4. It says, first, therefore. So you've got to go back and look at what we talked about last week. Go back and review chapter 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation. There's the key phrase today. So great a salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. And by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Since we have been offered... This great salvation in Jesus, the first. We must always give its message our greatest attention. We must always. Now normally, I don't use this type of language. I I tend, and if you've paid attention in my points and my structure, I try to do what I call, or what I've been taught, faith-based language. The, the, The language is, we can do it. By the power of Christ, we can whatever. But that's not, the, that's not the language of the text today. He says, because, therefore, looking back, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, he says, we must. He's imploring, and I, I'm, I must do the same as, as the preacher of this text to go, we must pay closer attention. Please do not miss this. Don't let salvation in Christ become some kind of foundational thing that you don't touch anymore. Oh, I've done, that's a one and done. No, it's not. The writer here and in other places, I could go all over in the New Testament to see that we must come back to the first things. Come back to your first love again and again. He says, therefore, he's looking back at Hebrews chapter 1. I want to give you this. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 has just said this. Therefore, angels are only servants, spirits sent to care for people who will inherit salvation. He is closed his first thought by saying, Christ is so much greater than the angels. His gospel is so much greater. His name is so much greater. Don't even get that mixed up. And transition. In fact, these angels, these servants, were sent to care for us as we inherit salvation. They're messengers towards us of this great gospel. They're going to come and reinforce what God has already done and what God has already said. That's their job. To serve him and in fact in this way to serve us towards salvation. So because of this we must, we must. The need, the necessity is lying right there in the text. And what is the must? The thing if you get nothing else today. Would you pay much closer attention to your salvation? Look so much more intensely at it. 
I don't care if you've been saved 50 years. It doesn't matter. Because the moment we drift away from that point, the moment we miss so much of what Christ is doing and has done in our life, and we begin to doubt, we begin to lack joy. Because peace, joy, assurance, contentment, it's all lying there in the salvation story that we must never tire of. We must never tire of it. He says, pay much closer attention to this. Attention is this idea, literally in the Greek, it's prosecho, which means to bring near. That you would, this thing that you have, you have it, you're connected to it, believer, but you gotta pull that thing in. Bring it nearer to you, hold it in your mind, pay cautious attention to it, lest you drift away. Now, I love this. This word here in the text, because it immediately brings a picture in my mind. This idea that we would drift. I want to tell you a, a, a story really quick that, that came to mind immediately when I read the text. Uh, me and my wife and some of our friends uh, decided, spring break in college, we decided we're going to go down to the Everglades uh, don't know whose crazy idea that was, but let's go down to the Everglades and see the Crocs and let's camp out down there, which was madness. But you know what's, I'll tell you what the Everglades is surprising about. Yes, there's, there's alligators or whatever, not Crocs, alligators, and um, that's spooky in its own right. But that's not the problem with the Everglades. If you've ever been, you know this is true. When you pull right into some of these campsites, they literally have a meter on the entrance that says the level at which the mosquitoes are out. And the top shelf, the very farthest one over, is called Total Bedlam. Like That's not even a word I use ever. And we were right there. Just under total bedlam. We opened the doors and went, I mean, you could hear them. They were waiting on us. It was madness. The mosquitoes are terrible there. But we got this bright idea. Hey, let's go canoeing down this river that's got gators. And I don't know if we were bold. I don't know what was going on. And they said, you know, the gators probably going to leave you alone. But don't go this one way because there's some manatees over there. And they're really irritable. Like, wasn't even counting on manatees. That's a new one. Um. Apparently that's an ornery animal. Ain't got all them teeth and no toothbrush or something. Anyway, um, no one got that. That's a water boy joke. Okay. Oh, well. My humor is not always great. I don't even like it. Um, but anyway, we're, we're drifting, okay? So this is, this is the, the picture that came to mind. Is heard as, as soon as I heard this idea of pay closer attention lest you drift away, this wild thing happened to us. We, got, we came down this river. We're seeing, seeing a lot of wildlife. It's pretty cool. And, and we get into this open area all of a sudden. And we all just stop paddling. And we're looking around. Man, this place is gorgeous. This is amazing. And we're sitting out there for 15, 30 minutes until all of a sudden one of us looks around and goes, boy, we have gone a, a very long ways. And it's really windy. So we said, well, we probably should turn back. It's, gonna be, it's already going to be a little bit of work. We turn back and I am paddling my guts out. And I can't get this thing to move towards the river that we need to get back on. And no offense to my little bitty wife, but that girl can't paddle a canoe to save her life. Uh, and none of our wives, it was several of us that were on this trip, none of them were very helpful. All of us decided that the most helpful thing that they could do, and this was helpful, babe, I really appreciated this, just take the paddle and every once in a while just throw water on me. Just cool the engine off. So she would just every once in a while throw water on me like, oh, thank you, Lord, because it was hot. 
So I'm just cranking it. We finally give. But this idea of drifting, that I took my eyes off the target for one second, and probably a lot of you have been in a boat or in some scenario like this where you weren't anchored in, and you're like, man, we've really gotten far from shore. We've really, we've really drifted away. That the moment I took my eyes off of what we were trying to do and just kind of went lackadaisical for a minute, all of a sudden I'm in pretty big trouble. It was actually pretty scary for a moment because we're out here like, I ain't trying to beach with some of these gators. I'm not doing that. So, The moment that I take my eyes off of what I should be doing, this drifting thing starts happening, and it can get really scary. And a lot of you are doing this in your actual This is your life. You're terrified of some stuff you're facing right now. And the part of the problem has been I've drifted so far from my first love. I've drifted so far from this thing that the writer here is saying, pay much closer attention. Remember who you were before and who you are now in Christ so that you don't drift so easily. That the, you know, the greatest way to not have this faith drift is that you would connect, reconnect with the Father daily. That you would have a habit of, I'm not going to drift, but I'm not even going to drift for 24 hours. I'm unwilling to do it. It's just not that complex either because you have moments of solitude every day in the car, in your bed as you lay down at night. There's moments of solitude in every one of your lives. I don't care how busy it is where you can say, all right, Lord, help me to not forget the first things. Hey, walk with me today. Be with me today. You could take one minute and not lose connection. Colossians 1 verse 20, it says, he, he here is God made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were His enemies, separated from Him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now, now He has reconciled you to Himself through the death of Christ in His physical body. So as a result, He has brought you into His own presence. And you are holy. And you are blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. What an amazing promise. But you must continue. This is the key phrase. You must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you first heard the good news. Don't get tired of what God has done for you. Look back at those things he's already done. This is why Paul writes in another place, everything that is pure, everything that is noble, everything that is beautiful, think about such things. It's really easy to get your mindset on everything that's going wrong in your life. And that is the news, right? The news sells bad. It has for decades. Nothing's changed. We're just a lot more aware of everything that's going on in our world. Paul says everything that's pure, well, what's the kind of pure stuff I need to be thinking? Look at what God has done in my life. I had this conversation over the weekend. We were talking about this idea of what it would look like to be patient and wait on God's plans. What that would look like in our life. And most of us agreed that something was true. Every time I make a decision to take a step forward on something, whether it's a career opportunity, a relationship, something like that, where I make the decision I'm going to go for it without any or or mostly any discussion with the Father about it, with, with, with my Savior about it. When I take those leaps of just confidence and pride, it goes poorly. It's going poorly a lot for me. And what I found in my discussion group was that it goes poorly for most people. <laughs> that when we decide, oh, this seems right, like everything, it seems like the stars align, so I don't really need to talk to you about this. I just know I can go do it. And it doesn't work out so well. 
But then when I look back at my life, everything that is good, everything that has gone mysteriously well are those things I really just kind of stumbled into by faith that God did and I wasn't expecting. Those are the greatest stories in my life. So let me come back. Let me think about those things. Let me constantly come back to look what God has done. Look what he is doing. Yeah, I might get dis, displeased with how this thing's going. I might get to where I'm like, I, don't, I feel like I'm running in place as a pastor. You might feel that like I'm running in place in the career I'm doing. But let me, let me look back and not drift from the things God has done. And that reassures me, gives me strength to continue. Don't drift. Will you give this message of salvation another look every day? Let it have your greatest attention. Here's the second way. We must take seriously the danger of neglecting it. Now, this is the harsh word of the text. And we can't overlook it. It's a pretty strong word. Um, He's come right out in verses 2 and 3. He's used the word neglect, but even before that, he builds on an argument. This is kind of a debate style. I don't know if anyone in the room uh, enjoyed uh, being on a debate team or something in high school. Maybe you did something like that in your, in your younger days. And, and this, this argument here, I'm gonna, some of you are going to be like, yeah, I remember that. Some of you are going to be like, oh, that's a new term. But it, it's based on a Latin argument style called argumentum a fortiori. Maybe that sounds familiar to some of you, but this is the idea. I'll I'll explain it in layman's terms. It's literally taking a lesser thing that's true and then showing you a greater thing that must be all the more true. That's the argument from lesser to greater. You may have heard that before, argument from lesser to greater. That's exactly what the writer's doing here. In fact, apparently this was a Hebraic style of debate already. I can't remember the term. I saw it this week as I was studying, but I can't remember what that term was, but in Latin it's... A fortiori. And so this is the argument he's building in verse 2. He says, since. This is where the argument begins. Verse 2, he says, since the message declared by angels was proved to be reliable. And then everything that the people, the people of Israel did in response to that, which was transgression and disobedience, they were justly rebuked. They, were ju- they had just retribution for that. So God did exactly what he said he would do when they disobeyed him. And he's talking here about what? What in the world is he talking? What is the message declared by angels? Pretty much there was a unanimous uh, thought on this from people I've read and things I've studied. And the Bible really does support this very well. That is, he's speaking here of the law. He's speaking here of the Mosaic law that was declared by angels. Now, I have to admit to you, my, my picture of what's occurred there on Mount Sinai is that that God has given those tablets, and, and that is true. I think there's, there's a sense that the law is continually referred to by, by, by the angelic hosts. Like they are the, if you will, they're, they're the reminders that keep saying, hey, look back at that. And so, yes, I do, I do believe that Moses has tucked into that cleft, and, and he wants to look at, at God, and God says, okay, I'll let you see the train of my robe. You remember some of this story. But that the angels as a part of Hebrew tradition, which carries into the New Testament, are then constantly going on to declare this law to the people. Look at, I'll give you a site that, that maybe will help you understand this. Galatians 3.19, it says, God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. So they had some sort of activity in the giving of the law. Perhaps it was God who penned it and the angels 
gave it. I don't know. It's hard to know exactly what is meant by that. But that's what the, the writer of Hebrews is speaking to here. This is the Mosaic Law. This is the Old Covenant he's speaking to. So that was declared and distributed by the angelic hosts. And guess what happened? Everything that God declared there came true. The blessings and the curses, all of it was true, and the people faced a just retribution. They messed up, and God punished them accordingly. Okay, that's, that's the lesser argument. That's already pretty heavy, right? That, that's pretty heavy. But he says if that's true, look what he says in verse 3. How shall we then escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Here's what he's arguing for, and this is true, my friends. That the, the word of God that first gave of, of the old, the, the angelic hosts, all of this stuff is wonderful. But now, 2,000 years later, not only do we have a greater Savior, a greater, but we also have a greater salvation. He's saying, not only is the, this a greater messenger, he's far greater than the angels, this is a greater message. And why is it greater? Some of you haven't spent maybe a lot of time in your Old Testament. I know it can be a difficult read. But what we find is that we fit in so well with those people. You might look at them and go, boy, that's far-fetched. But if you were them, you'd be right there with them. That we could never uphold the law. We simply couldn't do it. I can't even control the madness of my mind. There's stuff I think, I'm like, why? Where did that come from? I don't want to think that way. I think ill of people. I might think a sinful thought. Where did that come from? And the law just incriminates me. And it was given in such a way that it was meant for our good to, to align us with the Father. But its whole purpose, we must understand this, the whole purpose of the law is that we would see our need for a Savior. This is why he did it, so that the people would go, I'm not enough, I desperately need you, God. And that's what has happened now. We're on this side of the cross where we can say with confidence that we have a greater message, that we don't simply have obedience, which we do. Let's not overlook it. The gospel does demand a lot more than some people think. But it also offers a whole lot more than we could ever dream. I don't want to overlook the fact that God has called us into obedience as we follow Jesus. But this obedience is not like that of the law. Where when we mess up, we're cursed. No, this obedience is repentance and redemption. We're going to continue to make mistakes. He hasn't taken us home yet. And he hasn't restored the earth yet. Creation has fallen and we're a part of it. However, this thing called repentance, I can now look at a greater salvation and know that I have not been cursed. But rather, he looks at me and sees Jesus and sees sinlessness. Amazing. What a greater message. What a greater. So if we neglect it, this is the hard news of this text. Look, if, it, if God was just to punish these people when they did not obey his law, his old covenant given, if he was just to do it, he is going to be far more just when people deny a greater salvation. When we neglect this free gift of the Holy Spirit, this free gift of the cross, we couldn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, and he did it anyway. When we neglect that, God has every right. He has every right to push us aside. And he ought to. 
Because there's another problem happening inside of that. When we neglect, when we say no to that salvation, we don't even want that heaven. Because that heaven is a place where we worship a holy God. If you're not ready to do it here, you certainly don't want to do it for eternity. He says, don't neglect this great salvation. But he's speaking to believers. Don't forget this. He's speaking to Jewish background believers. This book is called Hebrews because he's primarily speaking to a Jewish audience who have come to faith. How would we neglect? What would we do to neglect this? Well, that... That is something to wrestle with as a Christian, is it not? That we would get tired of salvation. (laughs) That we would get so busy, it comes back to those F's, if you will. I did that. I did that already. I said yes to Jesus back when I was six years old. That we would neglect this great salvation. This is the real question here. Has your salvation in Jesus Christ, is it impacting your day Every day? Does it impact the way you speak? The way you think? Or have you gone completely and bought the world's goods and you think just like everyone else thinks? And you talk just like everyone else talks? That's neglecting a great salvation. You have been changed. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are in such danger of neglect as, as Christians. It is something that is so easy to do. Those who hear and keep God's instruction, they're preventing. This is like preventative care for neglect. Proverbs 8, it says, Now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. Hear the instruction. Well, are you hearing it, first of all? I can tell you right now, and this might sound petty, this might sound way too basic, but if you're neglecting this, you're neglecting a lot. You're most likely neglecting this great salvation, because this is where God speaks. Now, he may speak in other ways, and he does that at times. Sometimes I'll feel the, the voice of the Lord in my heart as I pray. Sometimes certain situations where I'm speaking to someone, I'll feel his, his thoughts come through. Where I'm like, oh, that was not me. That happens, but it's occasional. It's, it's, it's not often. I'll tell you where he speaks daily, here. He said it before, but he says it again to me in a fresh new way. I can read the same passage today and tomorrow, and he's going to say something different somehow. Because that's where he, he gave us this for that very purpose. And so you want to know how you might neglect? Don't neglect his word. Don't neglect time spent in prayer with him. You wouldn't neglect that time spent in conversation with your spouse. If you do that long enough, there's going to be a break in your, in your love. There's going to be a break in how you do with one another. There will be a sense of, at some point, one of you is going to look at the other and go, Are, are you mad at me? Is there something wrong? And yet we do that consistently with God. Neglect. This word neglect is not such an unknown word. It's kind of a legal word. And you know what? It's maintained this idea of of, of being a legal word even today. You know, there's, there's a lot of criminal actions that have the word neglect in them. Child neglect. That's an illegal thing you might do. That could be physical, a failure to feed, clothes, shelter. It could be educational, medical, emotional. There's elder neglect. 
malnutrition, untreated in their health problems, not giving them a safe environment. There's property neglect. That happens a lot in Rocky Mount, I've been learning. I have a real estate wife. Lots of property neglect, unmowed yards, dilapidated paint peeling. You know, the city at some point just says, I don't care if you own this property, we're tired of looking at it, we're going to tear it down. I don't know how they have that right. i got some problems with that, just, just on a, a, a patriotic stance. I feel like we used to fight wars over stuff like that. But hey, it's property neglect. It's illegal to let your stuff just go, you can't do that. Emotional neglect. That We do this all the time in relationships. Now, that's not necessarily illegal. But it could be part of a, could be part of a legal thing if divorce was in play, that I felt neglected. That can be part of those terms. Look, we're constantly, we understand this word neglect, and maybe as believers we're doing this with a holy God, that we put our focus, we put everything, all of our eggs in the basket of the world's goods rather than his, and the consequence, the consequence is going to become obvious if you're doing this. If it hasn't yet, it's going to be obvious soon that this thing called peace and contentment and assurance, you're going to start seeing those slip away. Because it's our community with a holy God that keeps us feeling like, I know who I am. I know what I'm about. I know where my joy comes from. I've tested some of these things. I haven't tested them all. And I, I would say you don't have to. You can take my word on it. I've tested the idea of like what it would look like if I, if I have more material gain, if I fix this and that. I have found that th- this thing, peace, you can't buy it. You, you can't. In fact, you can spend a lot of money and actually have l- way less peace. And this thing, this contentment, this peace, it only comes from constant communion with the Holy God. Will you take this seriously? Not neglecting it. Stop neglecting the Word of God. Why would you do that? That the greatest information you could possibly get in your brain and into your heart, you would not even take the time to read even one page. Don't neglect His Word. Don't neglect time spent in prayer with Him. Here's the third way. We must always remember how it was declared to us. Now, this is like the encouraging part. He gives us a nugget of like, okay, we've got to be honest with ourselves. Unbelievers, if we neglect this, he has every right. That's a tough piece of, of, of text. But then he finishes with another, another encouragement, if you will. Verses 3 and 4, he says, don't forget this. Essentially, how it was declared, look what God has done. Now, this is, this is kind of a part of the account of Acts, if you will. It says that... Um, I have turned my page here. It says there in chapter 2 that it was declared both by the Lord by, to those who were heard. So who's the Lord here? Now it's moved into this is Jesus here in the text. Kurios here is now pointing to Christ. He has attested it. The Savior has said it. He, in multiple places, on multiple accounts, has said, I, am, I, am the fa- I and the Father are one. I I am the, the Messiah. He has said this. I'm come to die. I've come to rise again. This is what he said again and again. He's attested this gospel so that we might be made right with God. So it, he comes first saying it. Then it was attested by those who heard. So now he's talking about the apostles have, have now spread this word. And now, it was a, a, now God, it says in verse 4, that while all this was happening, while Jesus is ministering, while his apostles begin to share the news of cross, resurrection, look what God has done, this wonderful news. In the midst of that, God is bearing witness, God the Father, by signs and wonders. You want to know what some of these look like? Go to the book of Acts. 
You could see the wonders and miracles of the early church and by gifts, which Paul talks about often and some of the other disciples, these gifts distributed by the Holy Spirit for edification, for the building up of the church. Now that is what he's speaking of on that side of the Bible bridge. But here's what's great. Here's what's great. We're sitting in church today. Think about this for a moment. That what Jesus first said, others heard. Verse 12, then 70, then as many as 500 saw him resurrected. These people go out spreading the gospel. Such that over 2,000 years, roughly 2,000 years later. Not over, but roughly 2,000. Here we are sitting in a church building. That means there have been generation after generation after generation of people attesting the faith. That is of wonder in and of itself. What a miraculous thing that God has done. That people on the other side of the world will be sitting in a building praising Christ. Wow. Wow. And this is what he's referring to. This is one, I think, one of the wonders and miracles of the faith is that not only has it happened to and continued for 2,000 years, but also it jumped state lines, if you will, that once was a Jewish thing has now come to us all. I'm thankful for that because I don't think I have any Jewishness in me. I'm very thankful that, came, that God came and rescued the Gentiles. We were a hot mess. And look what... An amazing thing. And then you can bring this. So that's, that's this global image that, that the writer of Hebrews is making. But it's far more, more personal than that for me. He wants to remind us here of how we received it. Look back at how it, was, how it was borne witness to you. The gifts of the Holy Spirit you've observed. Paul lists several eyewitnesses, in fact, that attest the claims of the gospel. I was speaking to this, but let me read the text. 1 Corinthians 15, it says... Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I passed on to you that was most important and what had also been passed on to me. That, and here's the gospel. That Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was then seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive. At the writing of, of Paul here, those people were living, though some have died. And then he has, it was seen by James and later by the apostles, last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. As one, he says in an, another translation, abnormally born. Paul's conversion experience was strange, is what he's saying. But he saw the risen Savior. There... There was a, a, a massive amount of people that saw the resurrected Jesus. Such that that was such an effective pouring out that we're sitting here now. Now whoever does not believe the witness of God truly has called God a liar. Is what John writes in 1 John 5. That if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is even greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning the Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. This life is in his Son. Whoever, this is a wonderful text, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Well, that's a simple, logical statement. Do you remember 
the way in which you received the gospel. The writer here is saying, don't forget that either. Let's look back at how it was first declared by Jesus himself, but then through the disciples, also by God's wonders, signs, and miracles. But then it came to you 2,000 years later. How? Parents, friends, don't overlook the way in which God declared his gospel to you. This is a very important piece of your testimony, a very important piece of your gospel story. We remember best by being witnesses of the gospel to others. Acts chapter 1, it says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What a wonder this is. And some people would like to belittle this, but I think the scriptures teach completely otherwise. That, that the, the way that faith has spread, that the way that the gospel has come to the next generation, some people might belittle that and say, oh, this is a people that are weak-minded and, and hungry for something that, that they can't seem to be filled with on this side of heaven. They're not rational. They're... And so they say, well, you, you just want to have the faith of your fathers. The Bible says that's great. It doesn't belittle that at all. In fact, it says it's your primary role, parents. Your primary purpose for having children is to raise up the next generation of gospel-centered believers. That doesn't make you weak. It makes you righteous. It doesn't make you faithless or, or, or irrational, I should say. It makes you following the, God, the will of God. He actually, I can't find, I've looked, I've really been searching heavy. I can't find anywhere where the Bible teaches parents to make their children be well-rounded. It's not in there. I want to make sure my kid can both be an awesome musician, an awesome athlete, and is a super smart kid. And you know, that doesn't even really translate translate well into real life. I'm really good at preaching. I'm pretty rotten at other things. I don't need to be well-rounded. God called me to do this. That's an aside. What is your primary purpose? It's none of that. How well are you doing at passing the baton? That is your only purpose. That's the most loving thing you can do. Nothing you do, if you don't do that piece, in fact, everything else you've done is really not that loving. It's a wonder that you and I are sitting in this room and we have generations of people to thank for it. And this is the scary thought. We're only ever one generation away from totally dropping the baton. And I say this all the time. That's why what we're doing at home and what we're doing in these back rooms right now is way more important than what's going on in here. What's important about what's going on in here is that you adults, you parents or future parents, would get a vision for your future that says, I want to raise godly children. I want to raise them to know him. And maybe some of you I know are struggling. Your kid, you've done this. You tried this. You worked on this. And maybe they've strayed. And our prayers are for them to return to the faith. But our, our goal, our, our process is I'm going to continue to work on that. I'm going to continue to make that the big deal. But it's not just as a parent. It's not just that. He says, you will be my witnesses everywhere you go. Your, your job. It, people ask me all the time, you know, I'm not really sure what my purpose is. I'm not really sure what my spiritual gift is. And I think there are some particular things. There are some strengths you have. And God wants to use them uniquely. But here's what I know absolutely for sure. He gave you the Great Commission. Go you, 
believer, it's yours. You are one of my witnesses in Jerusalem, where you live, where you work. He may, you may be the only one in your work site that's the one. <laughs> he may have said, yeah, you might not like it too much, but I've purposely placed you in that crazy environment because I know you'll shine. <laughs> Ooh, boy, this is rough, Lord. Don't hide your light under a bushel basket, you know, as that old song goes. Shine it bright. Because God, who's, I, I would think there's beyond a shadow of a doubt, he puts you there for a reason. It's a wonder that we're sitting in this room. And what a wonder it's going to be that when we continue to declare this good news. And don't forget how it came to you. I don't at all uh, think less of my parents that, that they spent so much time trying to get, help me with my assurance of faith. I don't look at that poorly at all. My fondest moments, and I don't know that they happened a whole lot, but it seems in my mind that they did, are those moments around the kitchen table playing Bible quiz. And those moments where my dad would come upstairs and read old Bible stories, and I think gussy them up a little bit. I think he added some thoughts, because I remember the stories different than when I read them again. That's okay. Man, I knew, I knew names of guys. I, 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 knew, I felt like I knew more than some of the people in my church at like eight years old because I'm getting the stories. I'm getting them over and over. And I don't look at that with any sense of, of sadness or anger. No, I look at them with joy. Because I will, this idea of catechizing, this idea of learning when you're young is so important. Don't forget the way in which it was declared to you. That's the underlying purpose of this statement. Some of you have been people of faith for a long time. Go back to the first love. Go back to the former things and go, okay. It was my parents. It was this and that. And I look fondly on that again. Let me come back to the great salvation. Look at the wonder of what God has done. I must never tire of this. The message of God's great salvation has been offered to us in Jesus. And it requires an active response. If nothing else, get this today. It's not a one-time response. It is an ongoing, active response to the gospel of Jesus. Keep it up. Don't tire of it. Always give it your greatest attention. Take it seriously so that you aren't in the danger of neglecting it. And remember how it came to you. So that then you might be sharing it with others. Let's pray now together. Heavenly Father, we ask now. We ask that you would be with us. Bring these thoughts to our minds often. Strengthen us with them. I pray that as people start their work weeks tomorrow, as they face whatever challenges are coming over the next few days, that the salvation of Jesus would be at the top of their mouth, of, of their head and on the tip of their tongue. God, would you do that in us? We have a tendency, and we're ashamed of this, But it's true of who we are as humans, that we have a tendency to forget. We have a tendency to get so familiar that it just becomes kind of flippant to us. God, I pray you would remind us in this moment and those moments to come of how great you love us and how great a salvation this was. Help us to never, never tire of that. God, I pray that you would impact us with this tomorrow as we spend time with you, tonight as we pray with you as we spend time with our families over lunch today, over with our friends over lunch today, that you would be at the forefront of our minds. And I pray for that person today. Perhaps you came in here 
And this, this first love, is, none of this language makes too much sense to you yet because you've not said yes to Christ. He's not yet your Savior. Maybe I pray today that you've heard and maybe understood for the first time what Christ has done for you. That you can be a part of this family. That you can be a part of this thing God is doing in your life and in this city. And if that's you today, I just pray, I would ask you, pray with me a prayer of, of simple confession today. We, we say this often in our church, but Romans 10 says pretty plainly that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We believe that as a church. We, we put our faith in that. We stake our belief in that. And so if that's you today, you've heard and you've understood that Jesus is your Savior and your Lord. Pray with me this. Jesus, I believe that you are Lord of my life. I believe that this morning. Either knowingly or unknowingly, I've been running from you for a while. But I'm not doing that anymore. I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sin, my shame, my guilt, my brokenness, my wrongdoings. I believe that this morning, that you did that for me. And God, I also believe that you raised Jesus from the grave. And that gives me such outstanding hope that not only have you dealt with my sin on the cross, but you've also dealt with death. And that is no longer something I have to fear. I'm asking now, Lord, that you would make this a salvation which I have received today. That you would keep it at the forefront of my mind. And God, would you give me opportunities in my Jerusalem, that is my, where I live and where I work, and opportunities in my family to let people know what God you have done in my life. And we're praying right along with you, my, my friend, my brother, my sister. We're praying right along with you that God would give us those opportunities too, to bear witness of this great salvation, which is above all things, the greatest mission that anybody could ever receive, that we have been given the good news of salvation for all men. Help us now in our lives to use every opportunity to the glory of God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.